and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast, number 90. I'm your host, Brian Heineser. Uh, we will not be joined by our masturbation specialist this evening. Ian is at pedophile camp, or, or Boy Scout camp one. Uh, but I do have... You make it sound like he's Catholic. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly, right? Of course, with me is uh, is Mac. Good evening, everybody. And Terry. Hi, everyone. And making her return debut, Kimberly. <laughs> I missed one episode. <laughs> I think it can't be a debut if it's a return. <laughs> What's that? I think those two things are mutually exclusive. Are they? Well, not for Kimberly, so. they're not. <laughs> she can do them both. Wow. Um, I'm sorry you guys missed me so much. It sounds like you had fun without me, and and that's great, but I am glad to be back. You know what? We muddled through it. Um, It wasn't quite up to our usual standards without you, but, you know, we take what we can get. All right. We're glad you're back. Thank you. That's very sweet. All right. So the um, the first thing I've got here is that um, Susan wanted me to remind people about the um, gorilla skepticism on Wikipedia project. They, uh, they've done some ep- – they've updated uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's page. Um, they're in Portuguese, in German, they're, they're, so they're getting more translators. But they, they, they always, of course, need more people to, to come and help out and, um, and give them a hand. Uh, I, you know, and, of course, I'm not sure what all she's looking for, but if you've got something to offer, I'm sure that she can, she can fit you in there. So is this where uh, people go in and just check the accuracy and update the accuracy in Wikipedia entries? That's certainly part of it, but the other part of it is is making sure that um, certain pages are done as um, as well as they can be. Like part of I think Neil Grass Tyson's site was updating it and polishing it um, and getting it ready for when um, the the release of um, Cosmos Cosmos comes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I think, and I think getting it into other languages is is crucial too. So translators are are very much in need. Neat. That's yeah. a neat project. Yeah, it is a neat project. And but the other thing is, um, I I wanted to just say, um, Susan, um, was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh. And uh, so we certainly wish her the best. But I did want to say, um, we want her to get better. So we will not be praying for her. Right. Right. I trust she's not going to be trying any homeopathic remedies. <laughs> I, I don't think that we have to worry about that. I think that she. I think, uh, I think Susan's it, got that covered. Yeah, yeah. I think. Is so, it okay yeah. if we pray for her, but don't tell her about it? Um, I, I think in the studies that was okay. Yeah, as long okay. as she doesn't know. Yeah. I think you're the only one at risk of doing that. <laughs> That's right. No, nobody else is going to pray for her. <laughs> it sounds horrible when you say that, right? Well, I'm not praying for her. But, but uh, what because if I, I want her to get better. I pray for her, but I don't know about it. Right, so. It's not that we don't care. It's, yeah. it's because we care that we won't pray for her. Right. Yeah, maybe we'll donate to uh, fund research or something. Yeah, I don't know if she's asking people to do the, anything like that or not, but yeah, certainly. Uh, but anyway, so I, I did want to mention it, and uh, and uh, I hope that uh, she she does well with her treatments. So we yeah. do we do hope her, for her the best. Yeah, yep, absolutely. All right. So uh, I think that's all the announcements that we're going to do for this evening. But we do need to talk about because Kimberly she worked very hard to bring us Colorado Secular Conference. The Colorado Secular, what, and uh, and it was fantastic. Terry and I went. We um, took in the venue that she had set up, and I think we had a good time. It was really well done. It was very very professional. I was totally impressed. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm really. I was really just absolutely delighted to see you guys there. First of all, so thank you for coming. And uh, I I really did. It was it was a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And I thought it came off. I can't say without a hitch. But um, but nothing nothing show stopping nothing crucial. I think we did really good. Um, I can tell you, I had just an absolute ton of fun getting to know uh, Seth Andrews from uh, the Thinking Atheist community. I mean, just just a really great guy. A lot of fun to get to know, and um, and that was probably my favorite was just kind of hanging out with him and um, and just just getting to know him. You know, you, sometimes you get like a little blinded by the celebrity status kind of stuff. Yeah, but they're all just they're all just regular people. Um, and he was phenomenal to see live. It was so fun to watch his show. Yeah, well, yeah. He released that video that he premiered on YouTube that night. Yeah, he did. Shortly after he showed it to us, he it was up on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. So it's yeah. called what's Intelligent Design um, mm-hmm. from the Thinking Atheist, and it's just a really great juxtaposition of um, the majesty of nature against the horror of nature, and you know children dying and diseases and stuff you know you can celebrate god's goodness but you also have to acknowledge the uh the awful stuff too right really well done yeah 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 so that that was a lot of fun but uh, i would say the one that i was 
got the most out of was actually the climate change talk. Oh, um, Betsy Weatherhead was, so was amazing. Wasn't she awesome? And and really, she went through it point by point. And I think it's easy to go through a point by point when you're in it in with a group that actually wants to understand. And uh, so she went through it. This is what we're this is what we're clear on. This is what we're fuzzy on. This is what we're trying to figure out. You know, and 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 she was very honest about the information that we have and where it's leading and where it's pointing. And so that was it was a big help. And just to look at you know this idea that um, that it's not just temperature that we're looking at these other factors that that are changing and this whole climate change um, that that needs to be addressed. And I mean it, a lot of them come back to heat, I think, but. Um, she said, but that's kind of, you know, not the, not the one place we have to look. We have to look at all these other factors that are, um, that are signs of this climate change. So that was really good. I really appreciated her pointing out the weaknesses in their data, because I think that issue in particular gets really dichotomous. And she was really good about explaining the subtleties and explaining the trends and explaining the overwhelming body of scientific consensus on the issue. I thought she did a really nice job. Right. And one of the problems, of course, you know, somebody else is going to look at that. and, 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 And because she's honest, because she's a scientist and because she's honest about the weaknesses, that's where people say, well, clearly they, they don't know because of these weaknesses. They, they'll, they'll exploit those weaknesses as if it, as if it, you know, turns the whole thing over, um, when it really right. doesn't. Yeah, right. And we, and she and I had a really fantastic conversation too. That's my, my other favorite part of the weekend was sitting down with her and she was asking me kind of like, well, what do you want me to go over? And I was talking about how I personally can't stand it when our side, if you will, makes these incredible c- claims that aren't supported. Like, you know, like sometimes you'll hear people like, you know, if we don't do something immediately, there won't be polar bears in two years. And then sure enough, two years later, there's still polar bears. And it's like, it, it we kind of talked about this last time I was on about how the, your credibility then suffers because you said something so outrageous to try to make a point that it didn't come through. Sure. But now I'm like, oh, can I believe anything you say? And of course, there's plenty that you can believe. But hearing it like this was, I just think, so much more effective and, um, and, and helpful to understand it and to really get that sense of just how, how big and enormous and amazing the world is and, and how it all fits together. It's stunning. Yeah, I love that system stuff. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So she was a little bit worried about getting quoted, um, you know, out of context. We, we did actually have somebody who called up the conference and wanted to come in and he is a creationist with a radio program on the AM dial. And, uh, you know, I, I let him in cause it's not like, you know, we're, it was hidden or anything like that. <clears throat> and, uh, but she asked about that and I, you know, so I told her and she's like, she's like, I'm going to go on and do it just the normal way I'm going to do it. She's like, but I guarantee you I will be quoted out of context. Sure. And that's a drag that she has to worry about that. Well, that's the whole problem with, with all the scientists in that particular field is that it's, it's a constant with them. No matter what they say, somebody else quotes it out of context. And most people don't go the extra mile. They don't, they don't, they don't care about understanding it. They just care about the way that they can spin it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is a sad thing was, is if you're looking for something to spin, you're not listening to what people are actually saying. Well, that's true. And they're not listening. Yeah. Right. They're busy forming the argument. Yeah. And if, and if the polar bears are going to die in 200 years, it's still as serious a problem. You know, and, and you don't need that hyperbole to, or you shouldn't, let me say this, you shouldn't need the hyperbole to get the public engaged on this stuff. Like the, just the bare facts should be enough to get people moving on this topic. And it's, it's just kind of a, a, an amazing thing to watch how the, how the media and how, and how the public reaction goes with this stuff. There's a book called Who Speaks for the Climate by Max Boykoff. He's a researcher at Boulder, too, and he studies the um, impact of the, mes- the media messages and the media messaging on what he calls policy actors on this issue. So it's voters and it's politicians and stuff. And uh, there's a section in there about the imagery that we use and how all this over-the-top alarmist imagery over and over and over just anesthetizes people to the issue. Like you can be shocked the first 10 times, but then after that, you just sort of start to ignore it. I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. The other, you know, the other thing is, is that because she got up there and did speak candidly, she didn't go the extra mile to to use caveats and protect herself. She was just really honest about the data, which makes for a better conversation in the long run. Mm-hmm. It also makes it easier to spin. 
Yeah. But in my view, as a layperson listening to her, her credibility skyrocketed by the fact that she was so honest about the weaknesses. And stuff. I completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, me too. She's great. Just an amazing person. And I bet if we wanted to get, if we wanted to do our research, I bet she'd be happy to be on and talk some more. Oh, cool. That'd be fun. That'd be good. She's, she's so into it. Yeah. She, and she's just an awesome person. So. Becky Hale was great, you know. She's mm-hmm. um and she's on she's been on the podcast and she was great on, on the podcast too. Um, so she and she's just fun to listen to and 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 see what she's doing. So I I appreciated that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, even though <clears throat> is it Catherine Stewart, Kristen Stewart, Catherine Stewart? Yeah, yeah, she unfortunately she was supposed to be our keynote speaker on the Good News Club, <laughs> and unfortunately she had a medical emergency. She could not stay in town because she had to take care of her health. And she had to cancel at the last minute, so that was that was pretty sad. Right, but in its place, what you managed to put together was quite fantastic. I getting so. Mike Smith up there to talk, getting mm-hmm. um, Jeff. Oh God, I can't remember. Satterwhite. Satterwhite. Jeff Satterwhite. Thank you. Mm-hmm. He who was great. He's he's a fun guy to talk to too. Um, yeah. And who was the, who? The last guy is the is the one the only print I didn't know. He's Eric Cernier. He is a lawyer down um, just outside of Colorado Springs. And his background is that he actually grew up in the Good News Club, actually even helped them um, with some of their stuff until he had his own children and started looking at the curriculum and kind of putting things into a real context and not just kind of believing all the crap he'd been told for years. And um, it was just horrified to, to kind of put all the pieces together and realize what the message was and, and what it had done to him and what it was doing to, you know, other generations of kids. Was he still a theist? I honestly don't know if he's still a theist or not. I don't think he's um, I don't think he's much of a practicer anymore because of uh, all of the stuff that's been going on. But I you know, you say that I don't know that I've ever heard him kind of weigh in on that question. I, I think it's an interesting point because I, I didn't get the impression that he that he was an atheist and mm-hmm. that he just realized the harm that this was doing to his, re, you know, to kind of to other religions and his religions. And it's kind of way like in that video where he said where that where the reverend was talk, by, talking about the golden rule and how and how to apply the golden rule to their situation and the idea that if you don't want it, you know, government, you shouldn't interfere with government and you, if you don't want government to interfere with you. Mm-hmm. And and this I this idea that you know that that the establishment clause doesn't just protect the government from religion it protects protects religions from government and really even more so I mean exactly that, that, yeah that's its original intent right that was his original intent I mean so no I think that we have to push that when it comes to faith healing and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, I don't think that we can let that slide but for the most part you know I mean the Westboro Baptist Church are allowed to do what they do. Because of the establishment clause, we can't step in and tell them cut it out. Right. And it's, and and so I support their right to do that. And um, as long as they don't interfere with with government, and they haven't really. So, but I thought it was interesting that 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 was a a, a theme, even in this documentary uh, that was talking about what the Good News Club was doing. That a lot of a lot of these Christians were like, "This is wrong, and this is why." So yeah, it's not actually- just. Sorry, that that was Reverend Barry Lynn who was talking there, and I actually saw him down in Colorado Springs just two nights before the conference on Thursday night. He's the head of the Americans United for Separation in Church and State, which mm. is the theist version, basically, of Freedom from Religion Foundation. Okay. So it was fascinating to hear that, like you say, that opposite take on the same topic with the same conclusions. Right, right. And, and the thing is, is that it's important to have those kinds of allies because... It isn't just an atheist issue, and but it's hard to get a lot of Christians to realize that, particularly when you see the media. But it's it's good that we have people like um, like this Reverend out there um, that under that that see that, and and we can we can most definitely partner up with them because in the end, we both get what we want for, mm-hmm. through through that. You know, by by keeping them separate, we 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 both win. They get to do. They get to. They get to. You know, thrive in their way, and we get to thrive in ours. That's ultimately what we're trying to do. Right. It's good to have common cause too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and atheists get a a bad rap for for what the freedom of, uh, from freedom from religion foundation is doing. But what, but and but when um when they go out and they talk, that's one of the things that 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 when they talk to these ministers, they they they, they explain to them, this is for your benefit. And they can, and they, and, um, God, why can't I remember that the, the other co-hosts, the, the, the other president's name? It's, it's Anne. 
Annie Laurie. Oh, Ga- Annie, Laurie. Annie Laurie Gaylor, yep. and her husband is Dan Barker. Dan Barker, and Dan Barker has talked about. It. He goes out and he explains to these people why he's doing what he's doing, and when he does that, they understand. But getting that information through the media, forget it. Sure. Because it's not a big enough story. If if we all go, oh hey, yeah, that makes sense. Right. So. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so the other, the only, um, we, we did a, a panel discussion on all the local groups that I thought was really fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we had Sean Faircloth was the, was the other speaker. Who was fantastic. I, yeah. Yeah. Was. Really, really engaging. And by far, he, it, him and Seth Andrews are, are the best speakers overall. But Sean Faircloth even, you can tell that guy what, was a politician. He, it's mm-hmm. the way that he speaks. It's the way that he holds himself. It's the way that he engages the audience. He is so good. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, most people were outside having lunch, but I went in to kind of check, make sure all the computers and everything were set up. He did his entire speech silently at the podium with his slides, word for word, to get the right inflections, to get the right uh, <laughs> gestures and everything. I mean, he yeah. truly is a professional. Yeah. I think he is, uh, you know, a really good person to have in the position that he's in. And, you know, I'm really impressed. He's already thinking two years down the line what we need to do for strategy. And that's huge. We, well, we wind up being so reactive so much of the time. And he really, I think, has a good sense of the long game you know the long plan on this and that's what politics is politics is not about the moment it's about the trends yeah exactly and and he understands that and it's clear in the way that in the way that he presented his game plan that this is what we're going to do and this is you know this is the roadmap he has a roadmap for us to follow which i don't i don't think there's any other organization presenting a roadmap quite like that every other organization that i can think of is reactionary ffrf is a reactionary even the aclu is primary primarily reactionary so you can um, check out the roadmap at the Richard Dawkins Foundation website. Yeah. He has some really good ideas. Yeah, so for 20 bucks, you could not have gotten a better conference, I don't think, anywhere, anytime. No, and can I say that I, I like this conference better than the big conference that we did, the um, – uh, what is it? Atheist Alliance. The AAA, yeah. Yeah, the AAA, yeah. and that was a fun conference, right? But mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel like I got as much for my money out of it, and I, this was better. I liked the smaller venue. I it was, it was, I, I just, I just liked it better. Good. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for the single track conferences because you don't feel like every minute you're missing something you could see and doubting yourself while you're in the middle of a speech because you just get to be there. You get to focus. And and I hope it was really personal for people. That was a really important piece to it that I, I wanted people to feel personal. Yeah. It was a good, yeah, it was a good sized crowd, I thought. It was a good venue. Yeah. So can I tell my Satan story? For yeah, the absolutely. Right from the car? Um, oh. So, yeah, I have a Satan story. So Seth Andrews was the, the last speaker of the day and did just a, an amazing job from the thinking atheist. And um, one of his – he had a debate with his former boss um, on his podcast uh, a week or so ago. And the boss challenged him to call on Satan to come into his life. And, uh, see what happened. And, um, so he just did this really funny bit, you know, where he's like, Satan, use me as a vessel, you know, and we all sort of waited for something to happen. And of course, nothing happened. But, um, on the bike ride home, I started hearing, I'm a, I live about five miles east of the conference venue, right along the Cherry Creek bike trail. So I was riding home and like four, maybe three or four miles east of the venue, I started hearing tornado sirens going off in the neighborhoods. So I pulled over to get out my phone and check the track of the tornado warning and, you know, decide what to do and um, to take a couple pictures. And then I started riding again, and I happened to glance down at my bicycle odometer, and it was at 666.9. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminded me that, like, a year ago, I ran into some Jehovah's Witnesses in my driveway, and uh, after I politely brushed them off, I, I was on my other bike, on my cargo bike, and I glanced down. And my odometer was at 1666.66. So I think Satan is trying to contact us through my bikes. Wow. You realize that the interpretation of that number is actually hotly debated. It could be 661. It could be 669. So, you know, I mean, the, the problem it's is the number arranged. of the Schwinn. <laughs> and the, so, but the next day, because I talked to, um, I talked to Stacy. Mm-hmm. And she says you got to go to the hub. You, you know they're doing pancakes. Bring the kids. So yep. the next day, I I I I got the whole family. We went down to the hub the next morning, 
And uh, and the kids were like, "What is this? What are we doing?" You know. And, and we got there, and we got the, we got the pancakes, and you know, and then and then uh, they they had such a good time. Um, we, we played Munchkin with some of the other kids that were there because there were there were the other kids there, and it was great. That uh, my girls loved it. We we had such a good time. They are ready to come back next Sunday. So awesome! Cool. Yeah, they they cool. they were very and- excited. And check out Friday night, too. This Friday is the, the Friday night hub hang, and we're going to have games. And I'm going to hook up my old Wii system, and people can play sports stuff and whatever other crappy games I have on the big 150-inch screen. So oh. if you guys is aren't it, doing anything, it, come by. Is it just video games, or can we play? Can we find a way to do both, board games and, and the Wii? Yeah, I figure I, I kind of figure the kids will probably take over the Wii if I know kids, and then mm-hmm. we'll do board games and card games and stuff like that at other tables. And then some people will just hang out and talk. You know, some people aren't into the games thing. I am. Yeah, well, but, I've got uh, I've got this awesome game, but it's only good for what four or five people. It's called Pandemic. And oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah bring it for sure. Yeah, it's so awesome. And so yeah, I I, lo- I love it. So I've got that. I got Lords of Waterdeep. I I'm really getting into. Th- I've been watching um on YouTube. I've been watching um Tabletop with uh with Will Wheaton, and okay. uh, it's a dangerous show for me because I just I just love these games. And uh, so yeah, so I'll bring. Th- uh, that'd be awesome if we could play some games with people. So I'll talk to Jen and see if she'll she'll let us do yeah. it. Yeah, bring the kids. I've, come on by. I've got to say this: the information about the hub and what y'all are doing with the hub is so cool. I love the idea of having this umbrella facility for all of these different organizations to have events. I think that's just great. Yeah. Well, now you guys know why I've been so busy. Right. <laughs> well, I I know why you've been so busy, and and we I, I certainly appreciate all those things that you're doing because I I, I cannot do them. Uh, they're a lot know. of fun, and yeah. they're great people. And um, yeah, I I do hope a lot of a lot of people heard more information, and I'll make it down there and. And just check it out. I, I do. I really my, – my firm belief, and I've probably said this on the show before, is that we're ready for the next phase of the revolution. You know, we've kind of identified ourselves. We've decided on the track of reason, and now it's about community. And well, that's just about getting with each other. And I was pretty firm against the idea of the atheist church. Mm-hmm. But <clears> – <throat> and I think it's – and it, it has to do with that word church. But this kind of community building, which is – uh, the idea is to replace the church, kind of the atheist church. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely softening to it because uh, it is kind of nice to have a place where you can go and, and there are like-minded people around you and, and you, you don't have to fight with theists. I don't see it as an analog to church at all. I guess I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was more. I pictured it more like a, uh, like a venue, actually, like a, like a venue, and then just st- interesting stuff happens that I might be more interested in than other at other venues. I guess right, but and and, and that's part of it. Yeah, it's that's certainly part of, part of it. Yeah, but, but but the community part is there too, and I I do think that there is kind of a need to reach out to to give people in our community the same opportunities to network, to have friends, to have people, to have support. Um, it's just and, hard and it's, to see other people, uh-huh. other like the people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We, we need to move on and, and, and yeah, talk we've about spent a half an hour on this already. So, <laughs> yep. What's the matter, Mac? You, you, you missed I out. I put in content. <laughs> All right. So Mac has put together a whole list of, well, some of, there was one that isn't cryptozoology in here. So you're calling it cryptozoology and other mysteries. And what I found interesting here is that when I thought cryptozoology, I thought, oh, are we going to cover Bigfoot again? Bigfoot's um, been well covered. Already. Yeah, exactly. I think, so, I think we've talked plenty about Bigfoot. I thought that uh, it'd be good to let some less uh, some less storied creatures get some press here. Well, so I was trying to pick a theme out here. Um, but I, I couldn't do that. It's just, it's just this kind of a collection of stuff that tickles your fancy. Is that the theme? Well, I, I picked the centaurs. I picked the mermaids because of the Discovery Channel thing. Or the I, I figured, and that's why you picked the dragon stuff too, right? Um, I picked the dragon stuff because dragons are just plain friggin' cool. Okay. But the centaurs, both centaurs and mermaids have in common the fact that they're half human and half something else. Okay. So All right. they're, okay. they're almost and- people. The Skeleton Lake was my favorite. Well, okay, I love that. Tell, so talk to me about the Skeleton, skeleton Lake. Lake. That's the first one you've got in here. Uh, basically, they're they're walking through this they're walking through this area in India, and they find a frozen lake full of skeletons, and just you know thought something terrible had happened. What it turned out to be though was that basically hailstones, crazy large hailstones. And, th- and that, so that's what they actually just, that, that's what the actual. 
Right, but people didn't know for a while. So all of this mythology got sort of woven around how they came to be, how whatever it was, 300 skeletons came to be there. They thought it was Japanese soldiers, found out that the skeletons were not fresh enough to have been a Japanese invasion force. Um, found that they were all genetically linked together in two distinct groups. So found that they had all similar equipment, bamboo spears and things like that and found that they were all killed by a blow from directly above the head hmm. or about or around the, the head or the shoulders. So picture a glacial lake surrounded by very steep walled peaks and there are no trees. It's, it's uh, above tree line. So they had no place to flee when this hailstorm started and no place to shelter. And if you look at some of this, the cranial images of the skulls, you can see like, uh, fracture, you know, fractures on facial bones and things like that. And so, but originally they they thought that this might have been um, Japanese soldiers that came through there um, that uh, died of exposure. Right. Well, um, if it wasn't a forensic osteologist looking at the bones, it would be easy to assume all kinds of other stuff because it's really hard to tell um, unless you're trained whether the if like if you see a fracture, for example, whether it happened um, at the time of death or maybe after the death, as the bones were like whatever knocked around by animals or hit by a rock or whatever. So um, there's that. It's really it's also I would think in a situation like this, it might be a little bit tricky to piece individual skeletal remains back together with the right parts, kind of, you know. But isn't that always the problem in a mass grave? Right. Yeah. Just try and picture a hailstone nine inches in diameter, though. I was surprised there wasn't more data. So the bones they have pictures of on this website, I'm, you know, I would like a look at the at the array because I was really surprised they were as intact as they are. And then they, I guess the the lake just formed around them. No, I think the lake was there, and I think that they. I mean, I don't know with yeah, I don't know if it like more snow melt or whatever. Just eventually they got covered up. I think it's a it's one of those glacial it looks to me like a glacial lake where it like uh, as glaciers recede and and enlarge and stuff that it leaves behind this tarn and yeah I don't know how the lake level gets affected and they get frozen under wow Could 200 they been- people basically in one one night huh yeah they were on it they were all um, they were traveling through there maybe on a pilgrimage or something they speculate and, and would they mm-hmm. been would the lake have been frozen would they have been on top of the lake or yeah, I don't, oh, maybe so. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe so. Yeah, crossing it frozen. Yeah, interesting. All right. So that, so that's that was kind of a neat mystery, but that one's actually solved then. Yeah. All right. But it's still pretty weird. It is pretty, and it's and it's cool. It's very and cool. It's, it's extremely evocative. And it's anthropology, so it's it's great. And Terry was able to add some context to that that I did not understand. That was great. Okay. So, but let's get on. Let's get to the meat of this, Mac. Tell okay. me about um, mermaids. Technically, I don't think you can eat mermaids as meat. What? I'm pretty sure. Well, then this whole um, thing's a bust. Is that because uh, they don't exist, or? Because- <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's. I think it's you know either either version of the Disney mermaid. Either they're too cute or too carnivorous themselves. I think the problem is here is that they're too closely related to humans, and so there is a chance for a prion disease. I like that idea too. <laughs> um, actually, this came about. I. I happened to I get I got pointed toward this discovery.com show about mermaids and it was a it was a it was a fictionalized piece it was a pseudo documentary but it was still it was still kind of interesting and kind of evocative the thought behind it basically this thing was talking about they had these CGI sequences of of mermaids down through the ages and these 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 remnant tribes of mermaids from when man was closer to the sea and it was the aquatic ape hypothesis, right? Was that which in there led too? to it? Correct. Right. right. Which is, you know, the it, it is actually kind of a fascinating hypothesis when you when you read through it. Um, it's definitely got some problems, and and one of the things you can tell by reading it is that it's like, like it's one of those um, all-purpose answers type types of deals. It, right. um, I don't know if you've if you've read anything about the aquatic ape hypothesis, and there is still a woman writing books about this, as if this is fact. Um, but it doesn't. It has. It doesn't have as much explanatory power as as our theory of evolution currently does. Um, it it kind of relies a lot on some leaps of faith and some suspension of disbelief. Huge leaps. Uh, and 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 the other problem is that there's there's no fossil evidence to support it. 
Correct. And, and there's no, um, you know, molecular, molecular. Oh. Yeah. Well, and the, the biggest piece of evidence on this, uh, on the, on the non-existence of mermaids is actually the fact that the weekly world news confirmed that mermaids do exist. <laughs> right. That's it. And I think the only, I think the only true headline that the weekly world news ever published in all of its years of, all of its years of publishing was that it was going to be going out of business and that, that that was the last issue of the weekly world news. And I, even when I saw that, I actually didn't believe it. And you were right not to. But now the, uh, so this, this show, Mermaids, the Body Found, was kind of, it was kind of interesting. I, I see you found a Snopes article about it there, Brian. Yeah. Which was, which was pretty cool to read through, but, um, it was a, it was a good piece of it was a good piece of fiction and there were actually a lot of people that were kind of convinced by it when they were watching it. Okay, so it, it it is a good piece of fiction, but fuck you Animal Planet for playing it. <laughs> <laughs> what did I see there's a uh, there's a word for it. What is it? It's like pseudo documentary. Yeah, it's a pseudo documentary yeah. and the problem is is that that it it, it the only time that they tell you that it's a pseudo documentary is in the credits and it's right and it's not like and many many people saw that and and because it was on animal planet it got credibility well they framed it like a document like they filmed it like a documentary they mm-hmm. the right. narrator sounded authoritative i mean they they treated it like a documentary and yeah yeah so i can see why people got sucked in but it but the i don't know it, it's just me it's like the history channel talking about ancient aliens Right. Yeah. They've it's, all gone off the yeah, deep end. They've completely well, gone off the They're getting people rails. to watch, which is what they want to do. Um, they're getting people to watch by evoking things that people are going to be interested in. Yeah, but they, um, they did I, have a mission to start with. The History Channel was supposed to be documentaries about history. And once you start having ali- ancient aliens and shit like that, it's just. It, again, it goes back to that conversation we I had about how you ruin your credibility. The right? History Channel is supposed to be documentaries about history and people shooting a lot of guns of different types. <laughs> right. Because Top Shot's very important on there. Well, and you know, but they did a lot of, they used to do a lot of military history. They used to do a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. But they have lost their way. And Animal Planet has clearly lost its way. This is the highest rated program ever. On Animal Planet, and it's and it's a and it's a mockumentary. Yeah. What was interesting to me about watching that series too was it made me see. I'm going to bring anthropology again because um, when you look at um, artifacts or when you look at um, bits of history that we don't have writing for, it's really hard not to autofill the missing pieces, right, with your own biases or whatever. And they just like they had they would have like a scrap of imaginary evidence, like the tiniest little particle, and then they would build this entirely huge um origin mythology around like this one thing that they didn't really understand. And you know, so they had like like their behavior. They speculated about behavior and they speculated about um, you know, the guy the guy sacrificing himself to the megalodon for the good of the rest of the Oh, and that was that was beautiful. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> just manufacture all these stories around now, it. Now, I think the first, I'm checking right now, but I think the first one, uh, they did two different things about mermaids, and I think the first one they did was in 2011, was it not? Uh, I think you're right. And I think it was right around the time that what movie came out? Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger uh-huh. Tides. So, mar- so mermaids were kind of in the public consciousness around that time. Sexy carnivorous mermaids. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Here, but here's the problem, is that does anybody, maybe they do now, but prior to this, does anybody expect to watch something on Animal Planet, a Discovery Channel, that is not in some way actually science, in some way verified, to be a complete no. farce? No. and If you see it on Animal Planet, you would expect it to be about real animals, and you would expect it to be factual. Sure. I agree. That's why I never watch it. <laughs> I also wanted to share real quick while we're on the topic, one of my favorite British sci-fi shows ever was Red Dwarf. One of the ca- I'll go real briefly. One of the characters on there is supposed to be evolved from a cat, and so they go to this world in which they can kind of create anything, like their heart's desire becomes reality. And so the cat is talking about his girlfriend who's a mermaid, and uh, she comes out of the water, but she's a fish on top and a woman's 
bottom half. <laughs> right. And the other guys try to tell her, tell him that that's the wrong way around. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's really kind of funny, especially how sexualized the mermaids are, that yeah. you would think that they would be more interested in the lower torso being human ish and accessible and yet it's always seen where that's just one long fish body that you couldn't well, sexual be sexual with. That's why we have that is why we have um you know evolved the you know when she touches land her tail turns into legs. Sure. But right, but the cat legs. had a better way of doing it, I think. Yes. I mean, you know, if that was your whole point anyway. You know, the the other thing that caught my that caught my interest about the mermaids though is this is such a prevalent legend. It's in so many different cultures that it almost does kind of seem like there has to be something behind it. it yeah, it does seem like that. Only there doesn't have to be. And and that's the no. problem is that that is one of the pieces that they use as evidence for the fact that it's true, the fact that there are so many myths in so many cultures about mermaids. If How you, would six if, billion if take, people be wrong about God? Exactly. If you take a look at the Wikipedia page, it talks about the the Near East, the Arabian Nights, British Isles, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, China, Hinduism, Africa, and other. So you've got so many different places where this same type of mythical creature has turned up. But I mean, that's similar to the dragon and the, and the Yeti slash Sasquatch slash Bigfoot. Because it's not that hard to put two things together. It's like, Hey, I see a fish and it can be really big, like human size. And I see people and I'm obsessed with people because I'm one of them. What if I put them together? I mean, it's, it's not that hard to figure out how we got there. Great Scott, you've got your human in my fish. No, you've got your fish in my human. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't have to explain all of them to us. Yeah, We're really, fairly yeah, smart. Yeah. I'm old enough to know what that was. <laughs> but some kid out there is going to be going, what is he talking about? <laughs> so thanks for clearing it up. Yep, glad to. Um you know, and it it is such an evocative legend, and we've got we've got the Disney's Little Mermaid, at all however many sequels they made, and you've got that based upon Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Little Mermaid, which had a much less happy ending, and you know you've got all this different. I think there was a Daryl Hannah movie with Tom Hanks where she yeah. was a mermaid. Oh yeah, that's a lot of folklore was, in that topic. Yep. So, and then I threw, uh. Well, wait, hold on. But let, I mean, let's, I mean, the, the, there's some problems with the images of mermaids as we see them. And one of right. them is fat content. Because right. if this was a sea creature, it would have to be, um, it would have to be, it would have to be bigger to, to be a mammal. And it would have to have yep. much more, much more blubber on it. Right. You couldn't have those dynamite abs that we're seeing on all these, all these images. Exactly, and so and that is a big problem also, with the whole. We're talking hypothesis. a mammal. We're talking a lot of the images are half mammal and half scaled fish, right? Which which isn't going to work. They're they're yeah half and the half scaled fish is the real problem here because if it was a mammal, it would not have scales, but yet it would look much more like a whale, right? So I mean, so there, there's huge problems with with this idea that that mermaids as we see them could be real. Even if it even if it was true, um, so it's yeah. There you go. It's it, it's ridiculous. Now I, I threw a couple of uh, a couple of links in here about whales evolving from land creatures, and I, I threw a link in here. This guy's this guy's piece of folklore on the creation of orcas from wolves. Both just because just just because it's got. A little bit of they've they've actually got a little bit of fossil record they're claiming on whales evolving from land creatures, but the little bit of folklore was kind of cool too. Well, I thought whales did develop from land creatures. They did, isn't that why they yeah. have well, like they, that's what the they're saying? Yes. Stuff? Yeah, okay. they did. There's now, a whole series of transitional fossils. I, I got asked a question about whether if if orcas evolved from wolves, could they interbreed with dogs like wolves can? The answer is which no. led me. Uh, well, no, hold on, hold on. I want to <laughs> see, this is the crossbreed I want to see. I used to want to see a Chihuahua Mastiff crossbreed, but now I want to see a Chihuahua. Well, thank you, Kirk Cameron. 
I don't want to see a chihuahua anything. But that's my own bias against chihuahuas. Come on. They're awful. Killer whale with things. a big old head. Chihuahua. Oh, Chihuahua. <laughs> Anyway, do you know yeah. that I, oh, that see, I can bring, yet. yeah, never mind. I'm going to, I was going to say something uncouth. Um, since Ian's not here, I was going to cover masturbation. For Come on. Dude, we, somebody has to do it. <laughs> so I watched a documentary and I can't remember the source years ago, but there's these orcas. Um, I want to say in Alaska that will swim up this river and rub themselves on the, on the soft uh, rounded pebbles, you know, the soft edged pebbles in this river. And they think they're masturbating, which I just think is the most awesome well, thing ever. Orcas masturbating. Do. Parrots masturbate. Yeah. Well, that was not so very I crass, actually. That do also. <laughs> Come on, Terry. I expect more from you. You expect more crass. That's right. <laughs> Step it up. <laughs> if this is all you're going to bring. Hey, Ian, Ian left bring. a pair of big shoes to fill. <laughs> Don't fire me from the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So anyway, um, you know, since we're on the subject of mammal hybrids. Let's go ahead and touch upon the centaurs right now. Okay, you just reminded me, though, I, I, I have to say it, animal human hybrids. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it George Bush who said that? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, you know, the thing of it is that if George Bush said it, he probably thought they were powered on both gasoline and batteries. Anyway, uh, the centaurs not as widely spread as a as a myth, as the as the mermaids are, it's pretty much a Greek myth only. But well, I mean, they use them in still, Harry Potter, and they're around. Well, it started in, it started in Greece, and then other people picked it up. It's not it's not the kind of thing where it seems like it has a genesis all over the world, like the mermaids do, or for that matter, like the dragons seem to have parallel legends all over the world. Yeah, dragons have got to be though one of the most fun myths because oh, yeah. I, I mean I think that there's nobody out there mainstream that I'm aware of that that's telling me they're real. No, but we wish they were, except at the same time, we wish they were and we wish they weren't because, you know, wishing they were doesn't encompass the reality of exactly how much and how much territory a dragon can cover, how much it can eat and, you know, where it's going to make its nest in a city and how much damage it's going to do. Anyway, um, centaurs. You know, most everybody knows we're talking upper upper torso of a human on the body, the full body of a horse. Right. It's possible that this was a myth brought about by encountering tribes of extremely, extremely good, extremely able horsemen shooting bows, such as, you know, such as, um, you know, Eastern, I'm thinking um, Mongols and Mongols and their various different offshoots. Hmm. Okay. Are they always male? It looks at least looking at the Wikipedia page here. Uh, no, they talk about female centaurs also, but I think the early ones were generally picture, uh, pictured as male. Because the mermaids are almost exclusively female because you want to see their breasts, yeah. and it's interesting that this seems to be more heavily weighted towards male. And, you know, on a point as far as centaurs go, they don't have to be much larger and heavily insulated with blubber, so, di- Brian, they can get those dynamite abs. <laughs> Well, uh, okay. Well, they've got to have, like, where are the muscle attachments for the forelegs, right? Like, maybe that's, is it in their abdomen? Where does that, yeah, the, you? Yeah, that, that would, is kind of odd. <laughs> it would have to be. And Yeah, but which abdomen, right? The horse's abdomen or the human abdomen? Is there, are there two sets of organs? I don't think that there would, I don't so think there would be two sets of organs. I think that, you know, everything in the torso would probably have to be muscle pretty much exclusively. In you know, just human- like. It, it, in, the, in the human torso, it would pretty much have to be muscle, and you know whatever esophagus and esophagus and um, trachea running down to the horse, the horse lungs and horse stomach. We are arguing pseudophysiology here. Yes, we are. <laughs> and we're doing have we it well, hit rock bottom? It's so interesting to think about <laughs> how that would even work. I have so much to contribute here. Oh wait, no. I don't. Yeah. How, how many stomachs does the centaur have? How many what? How many stomachs? Well, horses just have one stomach, don't they? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, they're not. You no, know, we're talking cows yeah. have four stomachs, but horses okay. have one. All right, all right. So, so I would think stomach. they would only, you know. But well, now here's a question: Are centaurs are centaurs grain eaters like horses, or are they more omnivorous? Well, you have to look at their teeth, right? Their mass, their yep. teeth. If it's human teeth, they're masticating a variety of plant and uh, carnivorous sources. So, can they can they smell their own butts? 
How much I'm a flexibility stuck on how come you got? don't have any any half cow half man? Right, exactly. Why not? Well, actually, there are half cow half men, but uh, that would be that would be minotaurs. <laughs> but you oh, know, it's widely been... acknowledged to be pretty much half bull. Half bull. Okay. Half bull. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Is Terry going to continue to encourage him? Uh, yes, she is. Absolutely. Yes. You can count on it. I have a soft spot for plants. <laughs> All right. So, well, but yeah, we do have, we do have the half cow, half men. Um, but it's, it's arranged so that you've got a pretty much a bull head on a muscular human body. Sometimes with the lower legs being cow like, sometimes not. I guess the other question I have is, is how are we going to measure the height of one of these? Is it going to be like we measure a horse or is it going to be the top of the human head? How many hands? I don't, well, measuring horses isn't to the top of the head though. No, that's right? what I'm saying. It's, it's, to, it's to the, yeah, to the, the shoulder. shoulder. Yeah. 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 So how are we going to measure the centaur? Like we do horses or, or, or like we do humans? To the, I would say to the horse shoulders, right? The horse, really? to like, to like, well, where his gluteal muscles, if you can imagine the man's. Because, but unlike the ass, horse. Where his ass would be is where I think we measure the. Because, top. well, unlike a horse though, you know, cause the horse is bent over, right? And they can, the, the, the neck goes down and they can kind of, I mean, you, your centaur's not going to do that. How Are flexible, you how flexible is the centaur? The, you're autofilling the behavior though, based on, based on just a scrap. Oh, and who was autofilling the anatomy? <laughs> Well, now, see, if you scroll down the Wikipedia page, we have a real human, we have a real centaur skeleton. I see that. Yeah, that's awesome. Actually, it looks pretty good, too. It's a, it's a good it's a good fake. What? How do you know it's a fake? Oh, man. Because that could not work. There up. is a 90-degree angle in the spinal column. The spine, this is a problem. Well, that and then the spinal processes on the on the horse part are so different than the like. There's no transition between the size of the spinal processes on the horse part to the size of the spinal processes on the human skeletal <laughs> structure. There, <laughs> like. <laughs> well, also, and, and here's my thought on here's a thought that I've got on this. You've got a huge area on the creature uh, based upon the skeleton. You've got a huge area between the human ribs and the horse ribs that is essentially incredibly vulnerable to right, no protection, yeah. To attack. You don't have any skeletal structure there whatsoever. And I know it would be heavily muscled, but that's not a logical skeleton. The point of the skeleton is to, you know, keep you from getting killed and right. give you structure. Protect the organs, yeah. Yeah. Creatures that have had their organs protected by their skeletons have tended to breed descendants. Well, maybe this is maybe this is the clue to their extinction, right? <laughs> the fact that the physiology doesn't work from the beginning—they evolved this ridiculous it. physiology somehow, and then yeah. Now there have been in recent uh, recent fantasy and recent you know recent uh, speculative fiction, there have been centaurs that are human and other other creatures, H- human lion, human. Um, you know, various, various different, uh, various different types of creatures. Well, let's not forget Puck. Puck, was, Puck was human from, and um, and an ass, right? From Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, Puck? exactly. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah, but he wasn't. We're not talking a traditional centaur form. He'd be closer to something like a satyr. No, he'd be closer to something that might actually work, though. Yeah, that is true. All right. Cool. Anyway, so let's move on to the real, the real fun stuff. <laughs> Dragons. Um. There's dragons all over the world. There's European dragons. There's dragons in old, old Norse myths. There's dragons in, although they look different, there are dragons in Chinese and Japanese mythology. Yep. Um, it mentions Vietnam as well, although I'm not nearly as familiar with that. There's dragons in India, apparently. There's Persian dragons. This is something that seemingly you had stories about these creatures cropping up pretty much simultaneously, not, maybe not simultaneously, but spontaneously in a lot of different areas of the world. I would, you know, I would, I would argue with the idea that they're spontaneous. And you and think this is something that's been passed around from one place to another? I, not only that, I think that, you know, that, that there might be something here where, where it's talking about, you know, that, you know, fossils, T-Rex, large lizards that that inhabited okay. i mean i think that the i mean I, I think that 
there is oh, a you... good chance that people found these large lizard or you know large Tyrannosaurus Rex fossils and dinosaur fossils, and that and that's how where a lot of this evolved. We know that they had them. We know that T Rex was in China. That you know, yeah. and, and and so I, well, I you've I, got a you've got a really good point there. If you find a T Rex skull, you're going to come up with a lot of it, this is going to be something that doesn't match anything in your world, and you're going to come up with a lot of a lot of myth around it. Yeah, that's why I think that there is probably a lot of logic to the way that the dragon developed. Well, and at the, maybe I'm not, maybe the chronology doesn't quite work, but I'm thinking that at the time that there was writing and at the time that there was art, um, people were uh, interacting different from different parts of the world were interacting. So, they, you know, stories were getting passed around at that point when there, when there was written or right language or uh, art. And people have been interacting for a lot longer than, you know, then we have history of them doing. Right. So right. maybe they passed along the oral traditions, and then later that emerged in the writing and the art. You had feathered serpents in South America, though. Um, Mayan and Aztec, Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl. That's pretty much a dragon. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to add to my statement about the T-Rex skull. If you find a T-Rex skull, you're going to put a lot of mythology about it. If you find the entire skeleton, you're just going to be disappointed at the teeny tiny little arms. <laughs> yeah. No, but I really do think that there's a combination of things going on here. I think, but I, I think that that there is a focal point for where these things started to evolve from, and I think that that dinosaur fossils are, and not just T. Rex, because there are others that that could have inspired dragons. Well, now see, where do you think the fire breathing comes from, though? Because that's I don't something that's that's something that seems like it's there's a lot of folklore. It, it on. is kind of ubiquitous, isn't it? It is. Fire breathing, um, fire breathing, or gas breathing. Well, where are maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, fossil beds, I guess, are. Uh, I was just thinking of the with the way the rock looks at the KT boundary is is car- it looks like carbonized rock, right? A little bit. It's dark and has a band of. And maybe the fossil bed with some methane in it actually caused a fireball. Sure, or tar pits, maybe. Yeah, the tar pits would be, an, and yeah, that would be an excellent. Um, I don't know. I don't know that breathing fire. I mean, I I don't know where that where that might have actually come from, um, but I don't think that it's a too much of a stretch. Uh, it, here's an interesting point. It has been speculated that accounts of spitting cobras may be the origin of the myths of fire breathing dragons. There you go. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, see, that's interesting. Um, well, and back to the fossil origins for just a second. Um, it's really, it, if you don't know what you're after, it can be really hard to piece back together disarticulated skeletal remains. So they might have found like a T-Rex or whatever, a Tyrannodon, who knows what, and um, combine them. or You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. might not have known which pieces went with which cranium or which. Yeah, they, they could have combined a pterosaur and, and a T-Rex to, to get a dragon. Right. Oh, here are the True. wings. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean – there's a lot of uh, – I think we can speculate um, quite a bit on this, but I, I I don't think that we can ever come to a solid answer. Probably not. I, but one, I would... thing, one thing that always fascinates me is that we generally will picture the European dragon as a six-legged creature. Oh, really? We I, have I wasn't aware four, of that. We have four legs and two wings. <laughs> so he's essentially a six-limbed creature, which is something that we don't oh. find in the reptile kingdom. No, we, we don't. But once again, I mean, that's – who knows where that came from? If they didn't have a full fossil, they might have just pieced you know, together what pieced they could. Together yeah. What, I mean, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's never. Uh, even a T. Rex is never going to be a, a perfect representation of any dinosaur. Maybe True. it's a juvenile. Maybe it's yeah. Yeah. Who know. knows what? Yeah. yeah. But but I just I just think that it is that 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 because these fossils were all over the place and people were seeing these the idea that that they would come up with the idea of these giant lizards um whether they breathe fire or not it is not far fetched and and the way that we told stories and, and spread those around as well you know dragon is definitely evocative to us yeah absolutely and we still have i can think of three different three different reptiles right now that we still call dragons we, there's the bearded dragon, there's the Komodo dragon, and there's the Chinese water dragon. And none of those three are dragons, but we like to call them that. Yeah. So if fossils, if there are fossil antecedents to the dragon mythology, what's the antecedent to the mermaid mythology? Well, that, I mean, that is, uh, I, I mean, of course, I don't actually know, but I, I would guess it, I mean, it, it has to do with, I, I, I don't know. There's theories about the mermaids 
actually being like uh, manatees. Right. And we see we see a manatee dive into the water, and we only we we think we see something else. If you in and, and the manatee is has often been um, mistaken for um, a mermaid. It 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 is. I mean, though not up close. Not up close. No, no, no. But from a distance, sure. So and I maybe I don't the know. habitat of the manatee lends itself to sightings by people too, in a way it, that it, yeah, because they do yeah. kind of like to come up to shore and stuff, don't they? Well, so. Don't they? Don't they mainly make their habitat under places where people like to send, like to ride jet skis? Yeah, it seems. Unfortunately, yeah. And back, back in the ancient days, yeah, when they were riding their jet skis. <laughs> when they were riding their speedboat. <laughs> I think Poseidon had a you jet know, ski. You know, I think the newer jet skis without the sails are actually a lot a lot nicer looking. <laughs> all, right, all right. Let's wrap this up. Okay. I just but, wanted to talk. Oh, oh go I, ahead. No, go ahead. Talk. I, 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 I have our finishing question that I want to wrap up with. Oh, okay. I was just going to mention otherkin as a category when I was kind of looking through this for the podcast prep. Oh, yeah. According to Wikipedia, otherkin are a community of people who see themselves as partially or entirely non-human. They contend that they are in spirit, if not body, not human. So it's like uh, people who are part vampire or part elf or uh, things like that. And yeah, I, you know, uh, Gawker has a really good article that I put the link up for too. And he, it's very funny. This writer is very funny. And it sort of mocks it a little bit. But um, they build these whole identities around this idea that they are part something else. And it's it's like maybe a subcategory of um, trans something, transhuman or whatever, um, but also maybe possibly uh, with a with a dash of mental illness thrown in. So hmm. yeah, all right, it's interesting. Okay, uh, so. I, I don't know if it's necessarily I don't know if it's necessarily mental illness to want to think that you're you know to want to live a, a rich fantasy life to want to be something that other than your mundane existence. That is a right. whole nother podcast. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily yeah, mental yeah, yeah, illness, yeah. though. Yeah. I think it's just, I think it's just human imagination. So, all right, right. So, yeah, yeah. But I, I, right. I, you know what? I'd like to explore that, but in a whole context because I, would I think like to that do that's that really too. I think that'd so, be a very cool podcast yeah, so. to do. All right, so I'm going to steal me, Monster me, Talks final. Hold on, oh, go hold ahead. on one second. I'm going to ask a question here real quick, and then you can get in that final question. Okay. And the artwork depends upon this. Okay. So, if you were one of these. If you were one of these species we've talked about here, what would you be? Oh, I'd be a dragon. Actually, I might be an orca, but a drag- I'll choose dragon. Okay. Terry's going dragon. There can I be more than took- one dragon. No, there can be more than one, Kimberly. There can be more than All one. All right, then I want to be a dragon, too. Well, why wouldn't you want to be a dragon? Dragons. Are- I mean, dragon trumps everything. Yeah, it kind of yeah. does. Uh, I think Brian's going to end up being a mermaid. Be a reverse mermaid, Brian. Merman? <laughs> Merman? <laughs> Can we just choose one for Ian? Can we just pick Ian? <laughs> Make Ian a reverse centaur. Uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, yeah. But, I mean, what is everybody's favorite cryptid? Oh, I like Bigfoot. I, have a, I think it's all bullshit, but... Oh, Man, if there was a primate that was alive today that we haven't discovered like that, a huge charismatic megafauna type thing, that'd be so cool. Bigfoot is cool because it's actually plausible, and we do have an ape that, you know, um, Gigantopithecus. Right. That, that is, is, you know, could, you know, could potentially have been Bigfoot. So it, it, it's what's neat oh. about it, I think, is that there is some plausibility there. Um, but I think the sightings are utter bullshit, except for the wormhole sightings. I think that those are absolutely true. I, I think that 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 they are going through wormholes in vortexes. <laughs> All right, Kimberly. My favorite cryptid. Um, gosh, I, I tell you, for a very long time in my childhood, I thought that Loch Ness monster was probably um, made sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't quite get the full scale of how big or not big the lock was, but. Uh, I, I liked it for a long time. I saw a replica of Nessie at the Celtic Fair this weekend. There was a Celtic Fair this weekend? In Elizabeth. That's why I missed the pancake breakfast. Oh. All right, Mac, what's your favorite cryptid? I'm going to have to go Chupacabra just simply because yeah. it's got a cooler name. That's that a is one. a cool name. I, I yeah. like the the, uh, the Japanese Oni, which are kind of like demon characters, and they have different oh, yeah. kind of morphs and stuff like that. I like the Oni. I think that's how you say it. I could be saying it completely wrong. Oni's actually correct. Is it? Okay. Yeah. 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 I, that, that's kind of what I like because, and they're not just one thing. They, they kind of are, they're kind of a variety. Um, I, I, that, that's what I like. 
So, but you now here's the, here's another question that I think is 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 valid is that you know we, we've gone through these things. I, none of us here believe that any of these are, are are real. But does that does that detract from their mystery and and the fun that can potentially be had with these things? Absolutely not. It does not detract at all. In fact, if anything, you know, if if anything, it probably makes them more interesting that they've actually managed to maintain themselves in our in our collective unconscious as strongly as they have. Excellent. Yeah, that I I agree. I, yeah, I, they're still fascinating. Um, and the fact, mermaids and the dragons seem like they stick there without much help. The centaurs have had a little boost here and there. Uh, Narnia, Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in some ways it's more fascinating because if they aren't real, the origins and stuff like that, all that kind of stuff, uh, even just to speculate the way that we have is is a, is a lot of fun. There, it, it it is a neat topic. Um, it's unfortunate that I think some people take it too far. It's Way neat to far. think about, the, yeah. It's neat to think about the stories we tell, though. Yeah, you know, absolutely. From a folklore cool. perspective, it is fantastic. All right, I think that uh, that'll wrap it up. Say right. good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody. That's another one in the can. <laughs> good night. <laughs> I know you've been missing that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. You can leave a voicemail for the Amateur Skeptics podcast at 720-295-7785. Music for this podcast was provided by OFM. To find out more about OFM, go to myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, no derivatives, 3.5 license. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics podcast. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art is provided by and copyright. Shadow Knight Digital Portrait. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. <laughs>